0: City. We saw the pictures of you in the dressing room crying. Can you talk about how much it hurt to be on the wrong end of those scores? <laughs> I just, I, I, I just. Then I had a speech. Uh, I just uh, remember my son today called me seven times and every time tell me, hey, ending you, ending you. And in this moment, then I remember this moment, it uh, was very hard for me. What's wrong about crying? You know, when you're happy, you're smiling, you're laughing, everybody sees it. If you cry a little bit, it's emotions. So I don't think anything wrong with I cry sometimes too. We'll cry today, later, but in the camera. Hi, and welcome back to the number one podcast in a sport where we're now starting to understand why Katie Taylor didn't want to be trained by her father in her pro career um, after what we saw on Saturday. It all makes perfect sense now. I'm sure there are other reasons which I won't go into, but yeah, wasn't wasn't a glowing night for Irish boxing, unfortunately, but we can come on to that later. I think the, the majority of my DMs and WhatsApp messages have been about... Devin Haney versus Vasily Lomachenko. So I thought that's a good place to start. And it's it's fascinating when you get to this time of year as a British sports fan because this is the point where it's crunch time. Football-wise, it's crunch time. Will your team go up? Will they win a trophy? This is when we find out. In a rugby context, it's the same. Are you going to win trophies this year? Are you going to go up? What's going to happen? This is when we find everything out. This is when we find out you know, at that top table, who can do what under the most pressure. And so, as I'm watching Devin Haney versus Vasily Lomachenko, it's bringing me back to what I saw earlier in the day, which was watching Leinster play in the Heineken Champions Cup final against La Rochelle. So, for context, Leinster, the provincial team, essentially Dublin's team, sorry to offend anyone, but yeah, essentially Dublin's team, swept all before them. Could rotate a squad of 50 players to pick um, a 23 who could do what they want when they wanted, essentially. What Leinster have been able to do over the last decade or so has been incredible. Absolutely incredible. But trophy cabinets kind of lain bare for a bit, but they've been absolutely incredible. So, we talk about how good they are as a team, but it's hard to call them a great team. Because they haven't quite dominated. They don't have, in the last decade, I should say, they haven't had a, a five-year run of dominating Europe, for example. They just haven't. haven't even dominated the URC since the South Africans came. But they have a style of play that is, in theory, unplayable on its day. Now, here's the challenge. In playing La Rochelle in the final, you're playing the one team that has the antidote to that style. So La Rochelle, small town in France, Seventy to 80,000 people and just have the most physical team I've ever seen. In terms of just raw size, raw strength, raw power, raw stamina, La Rochelle might be the most dominant club team physically we have ever seen. You wonder what they'd be able to do against the Springboks with that level of physicality. So I've watched both teams long enough and I knew there'd be parallels with the uh, Haney Lomachenko fight, because you know Haney's gonna start fast, slick, and disciplined. Kind of a bit like Teo did, but tactically different. But in terms of mindset, obviously take advantage of your youth. But what you knew was at some point Loma was gonna be Loma. The only question was when was he gonna start being Loma? How long was he gonna start being how long would he be Loma for? And would that be enough? And it was the same when I was watching Leinster versus La Rochelle. I won't labor the point, but essentially Leinster run off to this ridiculous lead at halftime. And you're thinking, that's eh, kind of done and dusted. But La Rochelle had shown enough to say, hmm, the surge is coming. Make sure you can cope with it, because from 46 minutes to about 65 minutes, we are going to run over you. And what invariably happened was La Rochelle surged, Leinster buckled. And they never got their composure back. And LaRochelle were able to win by a single point in a game where they should have been roundly beaten. And this, this kind of Haney-Lomachenko fight felt like that. It felt like a, a fight that was... It was close at the end, but it never felt like it was close at many points in between, if that makes sense. So I think there's value in comparing and contrasting how Teofimo... Approach Lomachenko versus Devin Haney did. So if you go back to what Teo did, Teo went position first, right? That was it. Teo just said, if I can get my left foot outside Loma's right foot, it leaves me two handed in my attacks, which is what Teo wanted. He wanted to be able to throw the big right hand and also the left hook, right? And so for the first half of his fight with Loma, he was able to execute that. It's very draining against Loma because he's so dynamic. And Taylor was able to do that, and so he, he never sacrificed position. Even if there was a shot on, if it meant that he was going to be in a bad position, he didn't take it. And so what that did is, it, it meant that Loma couldn't set traps because all Taylor wanted to do was hold that dominant position and it forced Loma to attack from positions where he wasn't comfortable. As Lopez got more and more tired, he wasn't able to do that, and then Loma was able to come round the corner. And as he was able to come around the corner, he found more opportunities. And that's when he had the Lomachenko surge. Haney started differently. So Haney didn't really bother with that position too much. There weren't many aggressive pushes to dominate that. He was happy to stay in that middle channel. So he was happy to keep his feet in line with Lomas or just inside. And he'd he'd cover his tracks by looping a left hook over the side and trying to throw a check hook to make sure that Loma didn't drift to his right. And so I thought that was interesting in the early part of the fight. And, and another way that Haney did it was he used his jab so frequently that Loma couldn't get around that. Couldn't really roll under it, couldn't go all the way around it. And I thought tactically that was quite good with from Haney. You know, His jab's one of the best in the game. It's sharp, it's accurate. His arms are long. And where Teofimo tried to dominate position... In the early part of this fight, Haney tried to dominate distance. Understanding that Lomachenko is shorter than him, has shorter arms than him, with a longer torso. So Loma's not built to to go shot for shot with a guy like Devin Haney, for example, just because you know, the dimensions are all wrong. And so Haney, Haney was really about controlling that distance. You saw a lot of long straight shots to the body. You saw a lot of long jabs. You know, there there's a lot of that. And where possible, he'd try and avoid being on the inside. If he was, he'd hold and spoil. Very simple tactics. Similar to Teo in terms of they picked one area they thought Loma was weak at and they I mean, they decided to dominate that. But in terms of you know, how they approached it, two completely different ways. And credit to, to both families for being able to to see these weaknesses and exploit them. So what it does is it makes sense to break the fight down into thirds because I think if if I'm trying to remember how I felt in terms of scoring, if you break it down into thirds, first third Haney three one, second third two two, last third Loma three one, roughly, and you can debate rounds here and there. So I don't necessarily think whichever outcome we'd had was a disaster. I think one twelve is a bit of a shocker, but it is what it is, I guess. But that first third was interesting because that was when Haney was at his best. That's when the tactical plan was at its best, and he was able to. To rack up rounds. And not necessarily by hurting Loma. But in having control of the distance. He kind of had control of these rounds. And Loma would. He'd come in and out with the exciting flurries. Mostly towards the end of the round. Yeah, you know, you're trying to convince the judges you're still in the fight. But Haney did a lot of, a lot of good things. Like we said, distance control. You know, the ability to just use the jab. Keeping things really simple. And when he felt under pressure, he was able to. To see into the eye of the storm, stay calm, hold when he needed to, spoil, maneuver Loma around him, just let Loma know that 135 isn't 126 or 130. And so you saw that. A um, couple of criticisms of Devin Haney from my perspective. He looked good when there was a distance between him and Loma. And I think when Loma shut that distance down, Haney would dig his feet in and then it got messy. That may have been part of the tactical plan, but he also knows he won't be able to do that against more physical opponents, against bigger guys. Like, you can't do that against a Teofimo Lopez because you're going to ship punishment and you're going to ship punches that may put you down. And so, as you're watching the fight develop, the surprising thing was the smaller man, Lomachenko, wasn't forcing the pace, which I think he should have done. And Haney countered that by going, well, if you want to force the pace, I'm going to go to the body. We're both going to be tired going down the stretch. But I think if Loma had started faster, this might have been an easier fight to win. And my logic is this. Once Haney built up a lead, it was easier for him to be a front runner. He's used to being a front runner in his fights. So he can he can adapt and modify. So there are points where he needs to take a rest mentally and physically before he kicks on again. And when you build up a lead like he did in the first third, it makes it easier. Let's say Loma had started fast and was 3 1 up after four rounds. And it was clear Haney would have got desperate at that point because he'd have had to get a foothold in the fight. And that would have been a completely different proposition. And had Loma done that, started fast, Haney would have been more desperate and that would have been more opportunity for Loma. We'd have got a more, a more open fight. I think we'd have got a more entertaining fight if Loma had taken that initial lead. But because Devin Haney did, he was able to kind of control how things happened he he had more more of a say in the fight than he would have done in any other situation and so that made it hard for Loma because Haney wasn't under pressure to make the fight whereas once we got past round four into round five six it was on Loma to really make the fight which you think he would have learned from the Teofimo Lopez fight right (laughs) but hey no one's perfect I guess one thing I did enjoy was just how how Haney has so many different ways. You can see he's been in different gyms and around different influences. His defense manifests itself so many different ways. He can be two hands up, he can shoulder roll, he can slip and slide, he can he can counter off his defensive moves. He can do all the stuff that the, the good fighters of the last few years have been able to do. And he he's a good blend of all of them. And Loma was struggling with that head movement. The number of times Lomo's was throwing three, four, five shot combinations. And Haney was just ducking under them. And i got to say this about Lomachenko. He didn't make the adjustments. It might have been the size. It might have been the physicality. I don't know. But he wasn't able to adjust to that. And had he been able to do so, I think he would have had more joy early on. You know, I always go back to when I met Loma and how small he is. Like, he's, he's a really, really small man. Um, we might touch on this later. But he reminds me a lot of Lee Haskins. Like, you'd see Lee Haskins in the flesh, and Lee Haskins was a guy, quite a short guy, really narrow, long torso, short legs, short arms, you know, and as much as he never showed it in a fight, you'd watch Lee Haskins train or watch Lee Haskins spar, and that guy could move. Like, he had a lot of the the traits and tricks that Loma has, and we'll come on to that when we talk about the latter part of the fight. He had a lot of those, but he never chose to show them on fight night. God knows why, because if he had done... We might be raving about him in the same way. Now, when you get into the middle part of the fight, I guess this this is the point where it becomes a battle of two dads. Um, Bill Haney's got to keep his son on message. I mean, 100% wedded to the strategy. And Papa Lomachenko has to get a performance out of his son that we haven't seen so far in the fight. So there's a battle between the two dads. I thought Bill Haney did really well. I think, I think both dads did really well. But that middle part of the fight is where you see Loma start to take a foothold in the fight. Maybe Haney tired emotionally. You know, like he was doing so well, maybe he was like, this is easier than I thought. And what Loma was then able to do was to start finding those little shots that he used to find Like when you watch him against Nicholas Walters. Those little shots, little sharp uppercuts, you know, left uppercut on the inside into a right hook. Those little shots he was starting to find that Haney was able to deal with before. Suddenly they're... They're getting more traction. They're getting more joy. And he's not as confident as he initially was. And I wasn't sure if the pace was getting to Haney, but Haney wasn't able to to maintain the distance like he was before. And it's also down to the fact that now Loma's got a few rounds of experience with Haney. He can now work out, actually, how do I get to him? And he's able to do it. You know, he took a lot more shots than he's used to. And I think one three five has been a massive shock to Loma because... And I guess this is why he was able to start slow throughout his whole career. It was At 126, he was quite strong physically, like he was dominating guys. 130, he was still strong, and he was still one of the strongest guys in the division. At 135, he's not. You're not going to bully a Teofimo Lopez. He's too big. Devin Haney, too big. There are too many guys who are too big for Vasily Lomachenko to impose physicality on. And I think that was probably the adaptation he needed in moving up to 135, and he should have had that principle of I need to win the first four rounds. Once I do that, they have to chase me, and then it's easy pickings. And I think, you know, in the middle rounds we started to see that thinking seep into Loma, and so now Loma's like, yeah, I've got, to, I've got to get these, got to get this young man panicking, got to get him nervous, and you start to see, you know, Loma warming up nicely through the rounds. So those middle rounds. Haney's kind of hanging on to his strategy, while Loma's dismantling it, which I found really interesting. And this is kind of what happened with Teofimo. You know, Loma was then able to start dismantling things and go right. We're going to do this my way, which then leads us into that kind of end game, the final four rounds. Which I thought Loma won three one. Um, thought the tenth was unbelievable. But I wondered why he hadn't done something like that earlier in the fight. There were opportunities to do that. Um, maybe he believed he was comfortable, I don't know. But that that final stretch, you saw Haney's strategy pretty much disintegrate. Like, Bill Haney had to get him back on the jab, he had to get him back on message, but Haney knew he was in a real fight, because now Loma started to really, really surge. And this is what I mean about class. We're going to talk about whether Loma's involved in the discussion around the Hall of Fame or not. But one of the things I never used to look at, but I'm going to start looking at is if someone goes into the hall of fame how did they do in those last four rounds because if you look at mayweather mayweather would normally take him he would normally sweep him 4-0 3-1 normally um manny manny could go hard as well a lot of the greats could go hard at their best they could go hard i remember you know, floyd against canelo swept him so we've got to start looking at that because Loma's definitely a guy who, who looks impressive down the stretch. And once again, he looked impressive down the stretch. He was able to, to be Loma for those final four rounds. In a way, that made you think maybe he's not old. Maybe it's a, it's a size thing and not a work rate thing, a speed thing, or an accuracy thing. Maybe it's just a size thing that he has to get over and go, well, I'm not going to be bigger than these guys. So what if I'm stronger? I just have to impose my style as early as possible. And that's what it felt like. And so towards the end, you know, Loma, he's, he's one of the things he brought in that I was surprised Devin deviated from was doubling up the backhand. So if you go back through the whole fight, the theme of the fight was when Devin was either upright with his head in the middle or he was down below bobbing and weaving, right? That was it. Uh, it wasn't, you know, It wasn't two hands up when he was stood upright. It was just literally, he was there. There was no lateral head movement on Devin Haney. And I think once Loma locked in on that, he was almost akin to gillet Zhang versus Joe Joyce. He 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 was, it frustrates me to say this, he wasn't missing with the backhand. And I think at that level, Loma shouldn't be able to throw two backhands and connect. That's just my take on it. Uh, from a coaching perspective, that would frustrate the life out I of me. Mean, I'm sure Bill was pulling his hair out going, what the hell is this? But once Loma was able to do that, it gave him a degree of control because Haney goes back in straight lines. Uh, so Loma's now figured this out. Double up the, the backhand. He's going to go back in straight lines. It throws his balance and composure off. Throw the hooks in. And then that's when you start to see combination punching Loma come out. As soon as he realized he could do that and that final four rounds Haney was just rich. he was he was fighting to stay in the fight I know his dad told him he's winning the fight and I understand why you'd say that but at that point he's fighting to stay in the fight there's no debate around that because it's a, it's a tricky situation you're in there where you're like I could try and hurt him but in doing that I may invite more pressure I may lose more rounds and so you get to the end of what was a it wasn't a classic, but it was a good fight. It was, it was what happens when two elite guys, two good technicians jump in the ring together and try and figure each other out. So there are ebbs and there are flows. Devin started off fast and dominant, controlling distance. Loma figured out what he was doing. Then Loma started to control position. In the middle part of the fight, he started to get that dominant foothold in terms of positioning. Then Haney had to adapt, so Haney wasn't as dynamic. Haney was trying to be more lateral in the middle part. Then in that final part, it looked like that took a lot out of Haney. He was a a lot more ragged. There were times you saw his back leg skating around when he was trying to throw punches. Sometimes he was tying himself up in knots, while Loma kind of sailed a straight path. Loma did what Loma normally does. And I think for Devin, because I still see that as his first real fight for me. People say Linares and stuff, but that's his first real fight. And he showed that he's not hes not this guy who's going to be the next Mayweather and dominate forever. He's a guy who is good. Okay, be absolutely clear about this. Devin Haney is good. But there's nothing there that would scare Ryan Garcia. There's nothing there that would scare Taylor. There's nothing there that would scare Javante Davis. There's nothing there that, that would scare Shakur Stevenson. There's nothing there that was super scary. Because some of these guys will have physical gifts that Loma doesn't. So, can you imagine Devin Haney in with a Josh Taylor? Josh is a Southpaw, nasty, you know vicious Southpaw who's got height and reach over him. What do you do at that point? And Josh has a damn good jab. So, how do you nullify that? That's going to be a lot harder for him moving up. But it brings us to the judges' scorecards. So there was a bucket load of noise online about, about the scorecards and who should have won and who shouldn't have won. Um, I think the scorecards were 116, 112, 115, 113, 115, 113, all for Devin Haney. Now, 116, 112 to Haney is ridiculous, but, but that's just one round away from 115, 113, which doesn't feel unreasonable. I had it a draw. I think it's a draw for me. Um, do I want it run back? Not necessarily. But I'm comfortable saying that that fight was was a draw to me. So for me, if it's a draw, I'm sympathetic to people who had it 7-5 either way. I have no problem with that. I don't believe it was a robbery. It wasn't a robbery because Loma kind of left so much money on the table in the first four rounds that he was playing catch-up. And when you play catch-up, you've either got to stop the guy Or your work has to be so clearly better than the other guy that the judges have no choice. And I don't think what Loma was doing was that. There's a lot of stuff that was bitty, you know, like the the fast combinations. They looked good, but they were hitting gloves and elbows and forearms and stuff. So there's, there's a lot of stuff you can say Loma wasn't doing. The crowd was also quite partisan. So if you watched it with the noise up then you feel Loma won because the crowd was a, what was 90% pro Loma. And I get it. Like he's, he's like a boxing cultural icon now. In contrast, Haney wasn't getting much credit for what he was doing. And there were some vicious things he did. I think in the second round, when he threw the right uppercut to the body, transitioned into a straight right to the head, nasty shots, which would normally get the crowd on their feet, but no reaction. So I can understand people getting this impression that Devin wasn't doing anything because subconsciously we gauge it you on know, what the crowd do, which we'll come on to later. And that maybe that can also influence judges. But I think if you if you canvass the, the broad spectrum, a draw is maybe 30% of people thought it was a draw. Um, 20% of people thought it was Haney. Thirty percent of people thought it was Loma. It's a fair spread, right? I got my maths wrong. No, fifty percent would have said it was for Loma. But it's a fair spread. It's not a robbery. That's the point. Um, you know, people are gonna ask, "What about Dave Moretti's going the tenth to to Devin Haney?" I, th- I think that's terrible judging. But if you flip that around. It's still 115-113, so it's it's within the ballpark of the debate. No issue with that, by the way. No issue. Well 115, 113 either way. We can live. But this idea that it was a robbery. And you know, we saw in the press conference Lomachenko was upset, but he was because deep down he knows he could have done more. He was hoping the judges would have sympathy for him. He could have done more. He could have done more in those first four or five rounds. That's where the emotion comes from. Like, ah, they took it from me. But deep down, I took it from myself. And you in Loma's head, he's like, I'd fight him again tomorrow and I'll beat him. Not sure if we get that rematch again. I think it will be good. But I don't know what Teo, uh, not Taylor, I don't know what Devin's contract situation is. Um normally in these situations, Bob's got some paperwork in there somewhere. But there was a lot of noise around. It was a robbery, injustice. This is why boxing's a joke. It, it wasn't that kind of fight. You know, people have their guy. There were Devin Haney guys. There were Vasiliy Lomachenko guys. And like I said, there's a lot of that effeminate energy sometimes when results are read out. Listen, two men had a fight. It was close. One guy won. We can move on. It happens in boxing all the time. You can't be upset because your guy didn't win. Boxing's not corrupt because your guy didn't win. Your guy didn't win because your guy didn't start fast enough. That's another big fight where he hasn't started fast enough. Will he make the adaptation that's needed to start fast against these young guys and test them and go, look, I've been at this level before, you haven't that's what he should do you know if you use the football analogy you know big clubs like to score early because they know that they've got the composure and the experience to score another one if they need to but they know the opposition will feel that pressure now they'll look at the opposition in front of them see world-class player after world-class player and go oh, I can't do this <laughs> I'm going to be brief on this, but as an Arsenal fan, I saw that when we played Man City. As soon as Man City scored, Arsenal realised ain't as good as them. What's the point? We're not going to score more goals than them today. And we just checked out mentally. Now, I'm not saying Loma checked out mentally. But I am saying he had the opportunity to impose himself. He's had a long time to prepare for this fight. And it doesn't look like the preparation was where it needed to be, is what I'd say. Now... I don't like to bring too much politics into this, but I can understand the Ukraine situation doesn't help, right? That doesn't help. So I can kind of get if your training's disrupted, even if it's just like mentally as opposed to logistics. I can fully understand that. But we can only judge what we see in the ring. And he let Haney build up too much of a lead. And that meant that Haney could hang in there like Teofimo Lopez did. And that's what Lomachenko's got to correct if he wants to get those belts back. What I found interesting was they just, they just brought Shakur Stevenson into the ring after the fight. And credit, man, it looked like Shakur had been on it all day. Like he had the shorts and the t-shirt on, like no decorum for the occasion, which I liked. And it sort of got the internet talking. And I, I don't like saying this. like You know when, when someone wins and they go, yeah, but Shakur beat him anyway. If that's gonna be Haney's next fight, credit where credit's due for going from one tough fight to another. Like you're doing the Cambosas was it, Cambosas twice. You jump into a Loma fight, you're gonna jump into Shakur, and then you're gonna move up. Wow. That's that'll be an impressive run for Devin Haney. That's when that's when he'll earn his respect if he goes in with Shakur Stevenson. I'm not of the camp that says Shakur Stevenson plays with Devin Haney. I Shakur hasn't been in with a Devin Haney in a professional ring, so we have no idea what will happen at that level. You know, I know we talk about guys like yeah, yeah, you know, he fought with Jamal Herring. That's not Devin Haney. That is not Devin Haney. So I'm gonna hold fire on who would win between those two. I don't want to, you know, don't wanna say anything too early because I think we need to see Shakur in in some some fights that will test him, and then we let let's get to that point. But, as you say, credit to both men. Credit to Loma for even a 35 going, I still want those belts. And credit to Haney going, I'll take on a legend. Now, a massive shout-out to Carl Chapman for asking this question. Do I think Loma belongs in the Boxing Hall of Fame? Yes. And not even begrudgingly, but you've got to remember how few fights he's had and how much he's actually done? He he takes a lot of Hall of Fame boxes because there's boxing before Loma and there's boxing after Loma, right? He he brought things we hadn't really seen at the top level before. Some of those those moves that he does, the little kind of skip steps, um, his ability to sort of shoot and pivot around the south uh, the southpaw side, we hadn't really seen that at the top level the way he does it. So he he did a lot of things we hadn't seen before and he's able to make them work in wins. Like he wasn't like he wasn't like an Emmanuel Augustus who was unorthodox but didn't get the big ones done. Loma got the big ones done with that style. So he qualifies for that. Um you gotta give his amateur record credit. The Olympic gold medals mean something. Um, this this guy's basically been dominant as a boxer almost his whole career. Yeah, and you have to respect that. And it's not like he, he didn't fight anyone. He's fought some of the best names in a very short space of time. He hasn't had a lot of filler in his career. No, and so I'd, I'd put him in. Now, in contrast, Golovkin gets nowhere near the Hall of Fame just because his record doesn't stack up. So everything Loma is, Golovkin isn't, in my opinion. That's why one gets in and one doesn't. And I, I'm, I'm bored of people telling me that both get in. And then they give me vastly contradicting reasons why they get in. But I, I'd put Loma in because, above all else, what are my criteria? Who you fought? Who you beat? Um, is there a before and after when you show up? Mayweather, Pacquiao, easy to, to show that. Oscar De La Hoya, easy to show that. Ali, easy to show that. Like There's a definite before and after. Um and then also the one I talked about earlier. How many times have you just swept the last four rounds in a championship fight? So he's he's in there for that. Credit where credit's due. So that will be that would be my take on Loma in the Hall of Fame. What I want to do now is is sort of switch back to the domestic scene, well UK and Ireland we should say. And you have to bear with me because after I did the kind of Haney Loma thing, got a call from a recruiter And that kind of pulled me in a different headspace. So I've had to step away for an hour. So this one's going to sound a little bit different. You might hear some more background noise because I think I've got some laundry on the go. But hopefully that doesn't come through. But I just wanted to zero in on on the Katie Taylor versus Chantal Cameron fight. I think we should call it Chantal Cameron versus Katie Taylor because she was the champion. But the point I'd like to make on all of this I think this is essential to understand. Whatever you think about the standard of women's boxing, and we can say that there's only five good women in every weight class, we can say all of that stuff, and you're not wrong. But in Chantal Cameron versus Katie Taylor, you have two elite athletes going at it. I don't I don't dispute that. Chantal Cameron's not someone who took up boxing in 2016 and has been fast-tracked. Chantelle Cameron is not Ebony Bridges. You know, Chantelle Cameron's not a gimmick. She's not misfits. Chantelle Cameron's someone who's been in this sport. She may be from the same era as Natasha Jonas in terms of, like, how far back they go as amateurs. But she's from that era where, you know I mean, like Nina, Nina Hughes, or as she was back there, Nina Smith, they're from that era. Savannah Marshall, too. So, what you're seeing when Chantal Cameron and Katie Taylor jump in the ring, are the two elite female athletes out of the UK and Ireland. I'd put Natasha Jonas in that category. I'd put Savannah Marshall in that category. Elite. So there's no, it's a good fight, but it's, that was a hell of a fight. It's a fight that we'd have asked for anyway. So as much as I criticize Matchroom on a regular basis, give them credit for making that fight. They could have swerved it. And they know they could have. They could have swerved it. But they made that fight happen. And those who know both fighters always thought Chantal Cameron would be a fighter too far. Just too big, too strong. Um, And she had the advantage that she's chased Katie Taylor her whole career. And when you chase someone, you're only really focused on them. Yes, there's a McCaskill fight, this, 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 that, but you're only really focused on Katie. Whereas Katie's focused on all the threats. So she can't zero in on Chantal Cameron and build up that that longitudinal study of Chantal Cameron. She can't. And that's one of the, the foundations of this fight. One of the things I do want to say is we need to walk away from this thing of undisputed versus undisputed. Because then we're trying to paint women's boxing in a light that I don't like. Are you trying to take the the energy from the men's game? Because if you're undisputed at lightweight like Devin Haney is, it means something because there's about 300 other people below you in the list. If you are undisputed at 140 like Josh Taylor was, there are another 300 people below you on that list. So we're not comparing like we like. That's where Eddie Hearn's dishonest. Where he goes, yeah, this is massive, it's too undisputed. That doesn't mean anything. What what really meant something on Saturday night was one of the best amateurs and pros women's boxing has ever seen, and probably will ever see, was taking on one of the most talented women's professional boxers Britain has produced. And she had an opportunity to ascend to that top table and it was a deserved opportunity and so we that's how we need to look at this finding we have to respect it by the way for a hell of a fight um, we can complain that it wasn't the aviva we can complain that it wasn't croke park um having heard the audience it doesn't feel like it was a standard boxing audience it felt very much like some of them i remember the all-female card they had at the o2 and the crowd noise was different obviously because you had more kids and more women and families and stuff and that's all right a lot of them were comped and now i don't really mind that but the issue with it is they're not a knowledgeable crowd so what ends up happening is they cheer at the wrong times in the wrong way for the wrong reasons and us as boxing fans who are used to a certain energy, like, we know when a good shot's landed and we expect a reaction, and it wasn't happening. Um, and it definitely wasn't happening in the Katie Taylor-Chantal Cameron fight because anytime Katie Taylor took a step forward, man, everyone was cheering. It was crazy. Um, enjoyable, but crazy nonetheless. And it's no less than Katie Taylor deserves. It's about time she had a fight in Ireland. But let's touch on this fight because I thought it was a really compelling fight for a number of reasons it, it mirrored Haney versus Loma in so many ways that you had the older veteran, the accomplished the, the heralded the, the first ballot hall of fame and Katie Taylor will walk into the Boxer hall of fame backwards if she wants to, you've got Katie Taylor touching the end of her career, what's she now, 37 38, she's touching the tail end of her career In terms of just time and bouts fought and all that sort of stuff. And then you've got Chantal Cameron. Chantal Cameron, who's believed from the day she turned pro, she can beat Katie Taylor. Um, Younger, fresher, fewer miles on the clock. Not ravaged by tournament after tournament at international level. Obviously, when she was coming through, weight was an issue and stuff. And I I mean, just like weight class was an issue, I should say and and so you've got these two and before the fight starts in your head you're thinking katie taylor might be too busy for Chantal cameron and then if you're looking at it from the other end chantelle cameron's punch power and punch precision might knock katie out of her rhythm that's where my head was at uh my mate chris asked me what i thought on the fight and i said to chris expect an upset i i as soon as this fight was made I was confident Chantal Cameron would win for the reasons I said earlier. Chantal Cameron has had 7 years nearly to study Katie Taylor and work out what she can and can't do. She's seen her struggle, she's seen her thrive. So she knows the many flavors of Katie Taylor. So, let's even before the first bell. If you're if you're if you're camp Katie Taylor you should be training to win the first four rounds, because this is your level. Chantal Cameron's never been at this level. That's what you should be doing. Win the first four, chill for a bit, let her get confident, and start gambling again, and then grind her down again, and then just finish strong. That's what you'd want. But then there are some constraints to that. Katie Taylor, as we found out Saturday, isn't that big. Do you see what I mean? She's. Like Loma, she looks okay at the weight, but there are bigger people at the weight. If you bring her down to lightweight, I think she's more viable. But even then, you got people like Michaela Mayer, Lisa Baumgardner, who will bring more size than Katie Taylor does. And so you're looking at it from that perspective going, I want you to do that, but it's going to be hard because you're dealing with someone bigger. But, but you don't have the option of sitting off someone bigger because they're going to walk you down. And then from a Chantel Cameron perspective, you just hope you can establish dominance with your jab because then you can just walk forward. And you know, if you've listened to me often enough, you'll know. It's infinitely easier to box going forwards than it is going backwards. Not many people are good going backwards. That is why your default position when you're coaching people should always be attack. Hit and don't get hit. I promise you, you push someone back they are not going to hit you unless they're special, unless they've got that balance and timing which not many people have. What I find interesting is people will try and tell me that um Cameron versus Taylor was a close fight. I thought it was a easy ish fight for Chantal Cameron. and I know people will tell me, "Oh, but look at Chantal Cameron's face afterwards." Um, a lot of that was headwork, and um, one of the things that never gets talked about with Katie Taylor is how reckless she is coming forward. she just she comes in head first. And I I wish refs were harder on that. Like, you should get one warning, and if you do it again, you should have a point off. And I think that would make for a better spectacle when it comes to boxing. Because there are times when it's accidental, and you're fighting for position, but there are times where people charge in. Like, Holyfield used to do that a lot. Um, Marcus Brown was notorious for that, too. But there is a zero in on this fight. Um like I say, we'll just break it down into the first three rounds, the middle four, the last three rounds. First three rounds, we're already surprised that Katie Taylor's being controlled this way. We're used to marauding Katie Taylor. We're used to Katie Taylor hitting when she wants. It's all on her terms, normally from the middle of the ring. So watching Katie Taylor play the periphery of the ring was weird. Like, I, I didn't see the tactical advantage. It was almost like she wanted to buy herself space. It was space that Chantal Cameron denied her. Chantal Cameron said, you're going to have no thinking time. We're going to get you back down to instinctive Katie Taylor, not not training camp Katie, instinctive Katie Taylor. And so Cameron was, and what I loved about Chantal Cameron is so much of it just came off the jab. It was basic boxing, but she brings so many shots in that normal British boxers don't. Let's give Jamie Moore his due. Look, I've given Jamie Moore and Nigel Travis a hard time because I've said that gym's a career graveyard and it has been for a lot of people. You know, they're the, the stag do kings. But whatever Jamie Moore did, kudos to him. Because Chantal Cameron took a very simple set of tools but made sure she used all of them and she was creative in how she used them and Katie hadn't been um, attacked like that before. I think if you look at people like Delphine Pursun, it's generally a power attack or an aggression attack. If you look at others that she's fought, uh, when she fought Jonas, it was very much straight shot, straight shot central. Um, even some of the other fighters she's had, it's mostly been straight punches. I think with Chantal Cameron, this was more of a 3D attack. So there were shots coming up from below. There were shots coming up up from on high there were shots coming from the sides there were shots coming from everywhere and if that was like the the jamie Moore plan, than kudos because it looked like chantal cameron was surprised that the early rounds were so easy but like i said once you once you establish that lead and she had it after three rounds now katie taylor knows this isn't how it normally goes now katie's gonna have to take a few more risks and you saw it start surging in, lunging in, and Chantal Cameron was able to say, Nope, I'm too strong for you. And you saw the difference in size when they were up, when they were up close. And so Katie Taylor gets a foothold in the middle rounds. Um, Chantal Cameron's like, I can lose a couple of these, it's fine. And then Chantal Cameron starts to turn the screw, and size matters. And a lot of the bodywork that was happening in that fight started to take its toll. Um, I think she said something like she'd heard rumors that Katie Taylor was vulnerable to the body. I'm surprised that so many boxers seem to be vulnerable to the body because now I said it after the pandemic. So if you go back three years, that was one of my predictions. I said, you're going to see a lot more people stopped from body shots post pandemic because they haven't had a chance to train them. Headshots, you can either take or you can't. Um, You can condition yourself to the to the pain and the discomfort, but you can either take headshots or you can't. Like, there was no amount of training that Amir Khan was ever going to do to take headshots. Body shots are different, and body shots are different because it's a system. So, essentially, you get hit to the body, your body's got to find a way to dissipate that energy so the organs don't get affected, Right? And so it's really about contracting and relaxing muscles in the right order as quickly as you can. So the energy goes up and it goes down as far as possible. And that's why they say having strong legs is advantageous because they can absorb a lot more of that energy. Now, that takes training. That's why you'll see guys who don't look like they've got abs, but they can take body shots all day because it's a system thing. Just like you'll see guys with a six pack who get dropped with a body shot. Because they haven't trained the muscular systems to cope. But we've had three years post-pandemic. Katie Taylor should be able to take those shots. If she's not able to take him now, it could be wear and tear. It could just be a legacy of a a long career spent fighting in in both codes. But the way Chantal Cameron finished off, I like that. Because it said to the judges, even if you doubt me, you're going to have to really rob me tonight and she she put a marker down and said this is how you <clears throat> this is how you win big fights um i didn't think it was close man I, uh, 97 93 for me um 96 94 you can take the 95 95 don't know what fight you're watching mate i thought chantal cameron was a fair winner i thought she was a comfortable winner and i'm happy because We talk about this a lot, about keeping money in boxing. Now Chantel Cameron has money in her, right? Now people look at Chantel Cameron like, I'll fight Chantel Cameron. Because it does something for me too. So credit to Katie Taylor for for taking this, man. Because this has been good for boxing. Um, Happy for Jamie Moore told you. Happy for Travis because he's obviously ex Lodge, but he had he was like he's always up to antics. so like you forget, Travis is a man in his fifties, man. The way he behaves sometimes, but I guess he's waited for these opportunities. Like Nigel is the son of Kelvin Travis, and Kelvin used to coach GB, also coach Audley Harrison. So Nigel's been in the game a long time, and he's getting his his dividends now. I mean, I know Porky will hate that one, but he he's getting out the sport the the results of all the work he's put in i'm seeing the same with eddie lamb i look at eddie another ex-lodge guy and you got sky nicholson uh you got pierce o'leary you've got sam noakes there'll be others phone dennis mccann you got all of these guys and these guys are getting their dividend now and so i say this for all these young trainers the guys in their 20s who want to be on tv and they want the ifl interviews look at how long these guys worked in the background Look at the years that Eddie spent at Kettles, uh, Nigel spent at Moss Side. Look at the years these guys have spent learning what doesn't work because we all know what works, right? We do. That's why boxing fans have inflated views of their own opinions because really the right answers are obvious. What's less obvious are the pitfalls. What should you avoid doing? What's going to waste your time? That takes experience to figure out so happy happy for them you know happy for I mean always happy for those guys happy for Jamie Moore like I said I've got to have the same energy and congratulations as I do in criticism and I think Jamie and his team did well Chantal Cameron was ready um like she should be because remember she wasn't plan a so she had to step in at short notice but they prepared for this so they were ready uh in terms of where that that rematch goes I find it interesting they're still talking about the Three arena. They're not talking about the Aviva. They're not talking about Croke Park. They're not even talking about the r d s like it's insane that we're still we're still wondering how much faith Matchroom from having Katie Taylor and I think the answer is not that much because they should be breaking the bank to get the Aviva, but they know that you're not gonna fill out the Aviva even that Saturday you could tell the majority of people who would have been at the Katie Taylor fight were probably at the Leinster um, La Rochelle game. And once they lost that, right, where's your enthusiasm to go and watch anyone else? So it was kind of a bad, bad evening for, for Dublin all around, wasn't it, For being honest. But look, I think both ladies are viable. Katie Taylor's probably got three fights left in her, and she can call it a day as one of the all-time greats in boxing for the barriers that she's overcome. And Chantel Cameron can go and have some interesting and entertaining fights with other people. I'd like to see her jump in with Natasha Jonas. I think, and I might be wrong on this. I think there's a weight that those two could meet at. I think, from being honest, I think Natasha Jonas could make one forty. And I think that's a compelling fight. But the rematch is going to happen. Let it happen. But let it happen at 140. That way, Tasha gets the winner. I know there was a bit of animosity and enmity from the matchroom side around the inability to make Jonas versus Harper. But look, we all understand why Natasha is not going to make that fight because when, when the shoe was on the other foot, there was no sympathy being shown. And I like the fact that Natasha's sticking to her principles. Her and Joe are sticking to their principles and they're like, if you wouldn't give us an opportunity, we won't give you one. And Hearn can criticize that as much as he wants, and he often does, and goes, well, you know, who's she going to fight now? Here's the answer. Natasha Jonas can fight absolutely anybody because she's never a light middleweight. So she can go down to 149, fight Sandy Ryan if you wanted to. She can go down to 140, and she can fight McCaskill. Do um, you know what I mean? She can pull these people up to 140, even a catch weight. I think Natasha Jonas could still make these weights. So... <laughs> Always have options. And as long as you're on Sky, you've got options because people know that's the platform in which to showcase women's boxing. But one thing I do want to touch on was how classy both women were after the fight. I thought Katie Taylor was class. I thought Chantal Cameron was class. I thought everyone conducted themselves really well. That was a great night um, for Irish boxing because we all understand that there were a lot of eyes on it, some for good reasons, some for bad reasons. And we know that there was a heavy undercover police presence there to make sure that issues weren't resolved with, with violence, essentially. So we understand that Irish boxing is a highly charged topic uh, for obvious reasons. And it's why it's so hard to get these Irish fights made. And I imagine that's why you won't see the Aviva or Croke Park offered up. I don't think the police would want to, to deal with that sort of problem. Should, that would be my summary of why it will only ever be the three arena for Katie Taylor. That's a real shame. But, hey, in life sometimes we reap what we sow. Uh, what else do we need to touch on about that fight? I'll come on to Gary Cully in a second. but The Kellbrook Brook-Connor-Ben thing. Uh, uh. uh. No matter what antics Conor Ben gets up to, no matter what deeds he does, here's here's how it strips down. Until Conor Ben is willing to sit in front of UCAD, the board, the National Anti-Doping Panel, whoever he needs to sit in front of, yeah, not IFL, not Radio Rahim, not Piers Morgan. Sit in front of the people you're meant to sit in front of, and take what's coming to you, and let's go from there. Bothering Kel Brook does nothing, you don't even have a license you have no prospect of a license in the UK and I thought Kelbrook was smart in his response where he said, the fight has to happen here, but I don't get it he behaves like a spoiled child Like he, he's a kid of privilege and and yes I'll accept that being the kid of Nigel Benn was probably a nightmare growing up because like his dad was a bit of a head case by, by his own admission that probably did a lot of emotional damage that I imagine Nigel's trying to atone for now, but it's probably left an effect on Conor Ben. So Connor Ben's got this duality in his character of the kid who went to the best schools wherever he lived, the kid who never really had to ask for much. But the pressure he feels to be something close to his dad, who grew up with none of that. And so we get these silly outbursts, and then we get the real Connor Ben crying and admitting he can't cope. He just needs to stop with the antics. That's what he needs, to, he needs to stop with the antics. I had a friend like him. And my mate's dad was notorious for just kicking off, right? right? And he could fight, but he could fight. But he was the kind of guy that if he didn't beat you up, he'd go home, get a bat, come back. If that didn't work, he'd go home, he'd grab a shotgun, he'd come back. Not really a bully, but a bit of a nutcase, right? And so his son tried to be that, but his son wasn't that. He didn't have it in him. And so his son used to get battered. And when he got battered, he'd call his dad. His dad was like, why are you calling me? Deal with it yourself. But he couldn't. And that scarred him for life. Like he, he's scared of violence now because of what happened when he was coming up. And Connor Ben's going to end up like that. Where he's going to be fearful of adversary. Ad- again. Where he'll be fearful of adversarial situations, because he could have just left Kel Brook alone and said, "Kel, when are we fighting?" All this, you need to stay retired because you'll get hurt bad. That, that that's just fake tough guy talk. Yeah, because when you're confronted with him, you just what? Well, just a shove. You don't even swing on him. And for all the things people say about Kel Brook. Stabbed a couple of times. This and the third. Kel's been there, done it. He get busy if he has to. But also, I don't know if I want to see Kel Brook box again because you're looking at him now, and the hairline's going, hair's thinning. I mean, the shape up's not what it used to be. He's he's not punchy, but he's talking like someone who is halfway out of the sport already. So, what's he sticking around for? Hopefully, not to fight Conor Ben. Let him jump in with someone like the winner of Eubank versus Smith. Or, I mean, see if Cal could make 168 and fight Canelo. Like, I'm more interested in that sort of fight. Oh, uh, wow. Let's talk about let's talk about Gary Cully. He's he's one of those, I call them matchroom victims, right? You know, when the matchroom hype machine just. Goes into overdrive, and they tell us that someone's something they're not, and that's what they are trying to do with Gary Cully, and tell us that this guy's going to be a monster, at 140 all the way up to 154. Um, his record would indicate otherwise. Like you're you're going to points with guys like Kane Baker. And that's no shots to Kane Baker, by the way. It's just saying, you know, that guys. If you were serious about what you're saying, you would have stopped a guy like Kane Baker. So, Gary Cully basically makes his name off stopping Miguel Vasquez, right? And then after that, they just set him up to to stop people. But you looked at Gary Cully and you said, he's got a bit of Robert Easter Jr. about him without having that toughness, where he's too tall for the weight. And you look at him and you go, you're too tall, your hips are so far from the ground that when these little guys hit you, man, it's it's going to be a wrap. And you, I think we've been waiting for that to happen, and Being tall, you can get away with in the amateurs. So being super tall at the weight, you can get away with. There's a kid, Conor Marsden, got away got away with it for years, right? Because it's only three rounds, physicality isn't an advantage at that point. So Conor Marsden had a great amateur career as a six foot wait, six foot two, six foot one um, lightweight. Had a great career doing that. Man, you can't knock his amateur career. He did well, but when he hit the pros. That became his biggest issue. He was too tall for those weight classes. And he was getting dominated by guys he'd have crushed in the amateurs because they could bring that physicality to bear more as the fights got longer and the gloves got smaller. And there have been many other instances. Fandora, you know, when they were hyping him to the hills and back. But he was also too tall at the weight. And this happens. There's a degree of solidity you need in boxing you need to be you know, solidly set in certain weight classes, especially if you want to take a shot. Those shots that he was getting hit with by Jose Felix, I'm not going to say he's a super puncher. Like, he's not a frightening puncher. That's not a guy like a, like a tail or even tank. I mean, those aren't frightening shots he was taking. They were good shots, but... His reaction to them was worrying because you're like, wow, you're you're really getting slapped about this place when you shouldn't be. And you can talk about all the technical flaws Gary Cully has. He jabs with his chin in the air. His defense isn't really where it needs to be. His footwork's not where it needs to be. He's never in the right shape to do anything because he's relied on power to get him out of trouble. And against Felix, he couldn't do that. And Felix was like, I'm here to upset you. I'm... Re- <laughs> on a standard, I'm refusing to believe Matchroom don't know what these Mexicans are capable of I refuse to believe that I believe these Mexicans come for a reason and that's cool but credit to them because they're seizing the moment I, people talk about Gary Cully will be back I'm like against who? Well, against O'Hara Davis O'Hara will do the same thing to him against Jack Cattrall Cat Capital's not stupid enough to get caught caught up in his games. So against who? Regis great God no. Who are you gonna rebuild Gary Cully with? Like you'd have to dig up a Sam O'Maison, um a K Prosper, uh Boy Jones Jr., you know people of that ilk if you wanted to rebuild him, but I think those guys could beat him too. I genuinely feel like Gary Cully is, he's probably at the limit of his capabilities now. It's all of these flaws, right? and I keep talking about this, like in the UK and Ireland, the standard of coaching isn't there. Like the desire for perfect fundamentals isn't there because that what I saw from Gary Cully wasn't great. And that's a lesson. You've got to coach everything, because if you think about a typical 12-round fight, even if you say it welterweight, let's just say there's a combined 1,600 punches thrown, and a punch takes a tenth of a second out, a tenth of a second back, that's a fifth of a second. That's about 320 seconds of that fight. That's five minutes of the fight where you're concerned with the art of punching. So what are you doing for the rest of it, and have you trained for that? Have you trained to dominate position? Have you trained to control distance? Have you trained to identify opportunities? Have you trained to punch in combinations? Have you trained to transition from attack to attack? Have you trained all of these things? A lot of times people don't. And it gets shown up like it did with Gary Cully. Where is I mate? I think you're at your depth on this one, if I'm being honest. Uh so I expect at some point they'll recycle Gary Cully and they'll recycle Lewis Ritson and we'll see something along those lines. At some point. Or they might feed him to Dalton Smith, they might feed him to Azim. Yeah, I just they've just realized Cully's not the guy they thought he was. What else has been happening in boxing? Because I think the rest of the card is kind of eh, A-sides won. Oh no, 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 no. JJ Metcalf won. Credit to JJ Metcalf. They never give up. There you go. Champion's mindset. So congratulations to him. Um WBC. Don't want their belt defended against Bivol. Boo. Childish. Um, Suleiman gets everything wrong. Um, happy to reinstate Conor Ben. Dumb move. Kicks out Bivol from a unification. Dumb move. Don't agree with any of it. The fact that that WBC amateur thing is dead. Dumb move. Um, the green belt's letting us down when it used to be the premier belt in boxing. So that's a bit disappointing. Um, what else has happened? For saying Joshua's not a Hall of Famer, one hundred thousand million percent true. No, seeing as they've kind of knocked about in the same era, you can't compare the careers of Anthony Joshua and Vasily Lomachenko. You can't compare the careers of Anthony Joshua and Errol Spence. You can't compare the careers of Anthony Joshua and probably even Shakur Stevenson. You can't compare the careers of Anthony Joshua and Devin Haney. You can't compare the careers of Anthony Joshua with Javante Tank Davis. You can't compare the careers of Anthony Joshua with Deontay Wilder. You can't compare the career of Anthony Joshua with many of these people. You just can't. He doesn't compare to Canelo. He doesn't compare to anybody because he has resolutely avoided putting himself in harm's way. He resolutely avoided putting himself in positions to get knocked out. And that's why he hasn't fought Fury, and that's why he hasn't fought Wilder. Look, Hearns had to admit there are no offers from Saudi Arabia. How long have they been talking about this super fight now? Six weeks? Not one offer. No date? No venue? I'm not saying it's not going to happen. What I am saying is that doesn't look like a country that's breaking its back to make this deal happen. So Joshua fights again in August. Who do you put him in with? Who hasn't got a chance of beating him? You won't put him in with Michael Hunter. So who do you put him in with? Fraser Clark? No. Joe Joyce? Can't now. Who do you put AJ in with? In August. Especially if the Wilder fight doesn't happen. I said it before. Hall of Fame criteria. Who you fought. Who you beat. Is there a before and after? What you did in those last rounds? For me, kind of in that order. So who's Joshua Fort? What, Molina, Brazil, Klitschko. Old Klitschko, by the way. Old Takam. Old Povetkin. Lame Parker. I'll probably run out of stuff. Fat Ruiz, old and just past it Pulev, we call him Mafia Crime Pulev, Um, and then like real tiny heavyweight Usyk, but good heavyweight by the way, beat up on Joshua, and then another small heavyweight in Franklin, short heavyweight I should say. On Joshua's record, he hasn't got a Prime Dillion, He hasn't even got a Derrick. And he hasn't got names domestically that he should have mixed it with. He hasn't got those. Can't be in the Hall of Fame. Now, we can talk about his 2012 gold medal and his legacy and getting kids to do this and that. And in the Social Change Hall of Fame, Anthony Joshua can go in there. The Meriden Estate Hall of Fame, Anthony Joshua can go in there. Not the Boxing Hall of Fame. We're not putting him there. So you got, you got that argument. And then people say, yeah, but there was boxing before and after Joshua. Uh, I don't think there was. You can't say Wembley became a thing because that was Carl Froch. That's his before and after claim to fame. So then what is it? It's not making ridiculous amounts of money because that's Mayweather. The one thing Joshua did is he drove everyone in this country to find a six foot six plus guy and try and turn him into the next Anthony Joshua. That's why we have so many heavyweights coming through. That's down to him. But I'm not putting him in the Hall of Fame for that because none of them approve themselves yet. But he doesn't get in the Hall of Fame as far as I'm concerned. He's not, he's not at that level. He's not at that level. Hearn can defend him to the hills as much as he wants. He's not at that level. Where is he now? He's in Dallas now, isn't he? But I guess in Dallas he gets to be who he is, man. God, let me stop talking now because my my throat's cooked. Um, Take care, guys. I'll see you guys on the other side.